let's pray. <clears throat> uh, Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you uh, that uh, you speak to us through your word, the scriptures. We thank you for your servant, Paul, who wrote this letter to the troubled church. We pray that uh, as we uh, seek to cover a lot of ground this morning, you would uh, keep us uh, mentally sharp and alert, that we would uh, delight to learn uh, what it is that you would uh, have us, uh, that you would teach us uh, through this uh, letter. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are lots of things that can make it hard for Christians to persevere as disciples of Jesus. Uh, it's all too common to know of people who seem to become followers of Jesus, but do not continue as his disciples. They start the race well, but they don't end up crossing the finish line. The things that pose a threat to Christian perseverance can loosely, very loosely, sort of fit into one of two categories. Uh, there are moral failings, ungodly behaviours that over time uh, will often uh, see people turn away from Jesus. But the other category is theological error, uh, compromising the truth, changing the gospel message that Jesus himself delivered and, and as we have in the scriptures. Now, Paul's letter, I hope you've realised this over the last uh, weeks we've been studying it, Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia is primarily, not exclusively though, primarily concerned with this second category. It's dealing with a theological error. As you remember from previous weeks, a bunch of false teachers had come to the Galatians and said to them that trusting in Jesus as Lord and Saviour is not enough for them to be declared righteous before God. They needed something additional to faith. They needed to also obey the Jewish laws and traditions, the law of Moses, and the sign that you were doing that was that your males were circumcised. Now, the Apostle Paul is aggressively opposed to such teaching because he knows that if that were to be accepted, people will end up in hell. You remember the fiery start to the letter. Anyone who preaches a different God, let them be condemned. So in his great love and his passionate care and concern for these Galatians and their, their churches, he fiercely rails against the false teaching uh, and also the false teachers who promote it. And uh, uh, I'm going to call the false teachers Judaizers. It's a term that a lot of uh, sort of the Bible scholar boffin type people use to, to refer to these, the Judaizers. But Paul also provides the Galatians with a number of antidotes to the poisonous teaching. And one of the big antidotes that Paul provides, one of the, the great tools that Paul gives to help the Galatians to persevere in good theology is that he explains the concept of Christian freedom. For Paul, freedom is a majorly important theological concept that helps guard against false teaching and therefore helps Christians persevere. And I've been studying this the last couple of weeks. I've realised Christian freedom hasn't really been on my sort of radar. I talk about sin and about resurrection, grace, but freedom doesn't come all that often. But in chapter 2 of this letter, we saw uh, some weeks ago, he said that the false believers had infiltrated their ranks, and the verse will come up on the screen, to spy on the freedom 
Oh, it won't come up on the screen. <laughs> Sorry, Shane, go back. Uh, I'll read it to you. The, 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 uh, some believers had infiltrated their ranks to, and I quote from Galatians 2, to spy on the freedom that we true Christians have in Christ. And in today's section, we discover what that freedom, what biblical Christian freedom actually is and what it means. So I hope you're keen to go through it uh, together with me. If you're taking notes, we're at point one on the outline, and our section begins, uh, chapter 4, verse 8, where Paul is warning the Galatians that if they accept the false teaching of the Judaizers, they'll be returning to spiritual slavery. Uh, Verse 8, formerly, when you, Galatians, did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Now, I often get the impression that the the typical Aussie thinks of themselves as being kind of spiritually neutral. Like, I'm not a follower of Jesus or whatever. Like, I'm kind of open to it, but I'm not like, you know, really against God or anything like that. I'm spiritually neutral. But the Bible consistently teaches and assumes that the default state of all humanity is that we're in fact in spiritual slavery. There is no such thing as being neutral toward God. Someone is either known by God, that is, he's brought them into a relationship with him, or else they remain enslaved to godless spiritual forces. For these Galatians... Paul's saying that if they accept the teaching that trust in Jesus as Lord and Saviour is not enough, they also need to add obedience to the law of Moses in order to secure their eternity in heaven. Well, that is to go back to the spiritual slavery of their pre-Christian state. And alarmingly, and we should be alarmed when we read this, it looks like that's what's happening. Verse 10, the next verse, you are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. In other words, they're starting to take up all the law of Moses. Now, observing special days is not wrong by itself. I mean, you might say we observe Christmas and Easter, though those days don't exist really in the Bible, but as a celebration anyway. But in this context, in the context of doing that as part of securing your salvation by keeping the Old Testament law, that's a deadly serious problem. And so Paul does a number of things. The first thing he does is he makes a loving plea for these Galatians to go back to how they were when their Christian lives were only about faith in Jesus. Uh, So verse 12, he begins the plea. uh, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong, as you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you and Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Now, there's a lot of stuff in there, but what is sort of really glaring and obvious is that once upon a time, these Galatians weren't on about observing special days. They weren't on about rules and rituals. They were on about loving and serving others. 
The very thing that faith alone in Jesus can't help to produce. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. Some Bible scholars speculate that Paul's illness uh, was to do with his eyes. Maybe he had a viral conjunctivitis or something. Who knows? Uh, but the Galatians loved him so well that they loved him sacrificially to the point where it's like they could have ripped out their own eyes to give them to him. That's the kind of character they had uh, when they were living merely, purely by faith. Now they're being enticed away to legalism uh, by the kind of people that aren't in it for God's glory but for their own popularity. Things are getting a bit divisive. Verse uh, 17, those people... The Judaizers, they are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so, they may, uh, so you may have zeal for God. No. Ben, you're wrong. Thank you. Very good. So that you may have zeal for them, for teachers. It is fine to be zealous, presumably for God, provided the purpose is good and to be so always, not just when I am with you, says Paul. A Bible teacher who wants to get a great following and great popularity for, for himself or herself will often, very often, be the Bible teacher that alters the gospel message. And he won't actually love the people he's leading. Uh, he will lead them astray with his false teaching because he wants the, the popularity. Paul, on the other hand, he distances himself from that sort of thing. He will always speak the truth, no matter how cutting it is, and it's been pretty cutting in this letter. Uh, and he'll do it, notice, in relationship with his hearers. Verse 19, my dear children, the people he's smashing, my dear children, he says, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth. Until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. This is a guy who really loves his people and he wants to work out things in relationship with them. He's not distant. Even writing the letter with his own name, I don't know, he wants to speak to them face to face. And he sounds like a desperate parent who's plagued with anxiety because the rebellious behaviour of his teenage children has, has driven him to it. Uh, they've started hanging out with a really dodgy group. You know the type, right? The bad group of people. And, and just like a desperate parent, he wants them to understand why the decisions they're making are going to lead them down a really bad path. But thankfully, in Paul's case, this is something can even trump a teenager, right? He's got the best possible illustration for explaining the right path and the wrong path. The reason it's the best possible illustration is by given by God himself. So you go, yeah, this isn't just me you can ignore. I'm going to tell you something, sonny, daughter, but it's from God. The illustration goes like this. Verse 21, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For he's written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of divine promise. Now, it seems plausible that the, the Judaizers, that is the false teachers in Galatia, prided themselves as, and other law keepers as being sons of Abraham. But Paul picks up the law and he rightly points out that uh, Abraham, in fact, had two sons. One conceived 
naturally by the slave uh, Hagar, and the other conceived miraculously uh, by his free wife, Sarah. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to continue reading, but I I can't fit both the words and the images up on the screen, right? So I'm going to read the the illustration from uh, 4 verse 24, but the pictures hopefully will come bit by bit as I do that. So you might have to do a bit of this. Here we go. Verse 24, these things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai, which, of course, if you remember, that's where the law was given. And she bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. That's because in the law, if, if the woman's a slave, the children she bears are also uh, slaves. Verse 25, now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds, this is the the image, to the present city of Jerusalem. And of course the present city is is the place where you've got Jews who are still under the law. Why? Because she is in slavery with her children. Verse 26, but the Jerusalem that is above... In other words, Sarah, and, and the, heavenly, that's the heavenly Jerusalem, is free and she is our mother. We are sons of Abraham, yes, but through her, not through the other. And then Paul does something in this uh, God-given illustration that to us I think seems a bit complicated, but I, to the Galatians I think it would have been an amazing touchdown bit of Bible teaching, right? Paul moves from Abraham all the way to the exile. He's got the history of Israel, right? Abraham, all the way to the, to the exile, when the Israelites, the descendants of Sarah, were in slavery in Babylon. Now, when Israel were in exile, over there in Babylon, the city of Jerusalem had no inhabitants. It, it was a bit like Sarah, who for most of her life had no child. But just like it was no problem for God to give the the 90-year-old Sarah her promised son, so it would be no problem for God to give the true Jerusalem her rescued Israelites. So verse 27 we read, For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud, you who are never in labour, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. See, I'm going to rescue the descendants of Sarah and bring them back to where they should be. And so the conclusion is, verse 28, now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It's the same now. The Judaizers are actually persecuting you by their false teaching. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Sarah's descendants will get the inheritance, not Hagar's. Verse 31, therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. To simplify it, Paul has just basically said the whole sweep of the Old Testament law develops this idea that God's people 
have always been those to whom God's promises are made and applied. God does all the work for people who can't do anything. Like a 90-plus-year-old barren woman who can't have a child, God does the work because that's what he promised to do. That's the people of God all throughout the Old Testament. If you're a Christian, God has promised you an inheritance to bring you into the heavenly Jerusalem. You cannot get there yourself. You can't do it. You're 90 years old, you can't get pregnant, right? You're by yourself, you can't get into the heavenly Jerusalem. But God promises to do it. He can do all things. He will bring you. Nothing can stop God making good on that promise. And what this means is that we are freed up. We're freed up to love and serve one another. Our energy doesn't need to go into trying to impress God, to be circumcised and live under the Old Testament law. We've already got all the favour with God we could possibly need. We are free from the burden of trying to be good enough to meet God's standards, which means we can put our energy, our effort into loving and serving one another. That's what Christian freedom is. It's the release from needing to merit God's favour so that we are able to love and serve one another. Christian freedoms, the release from needing to merit God's favour so that we're able to love and serve one another. And 5 verse 1, and I'll put the words back on the screen again, it is for freedom, this freedom, not for rituals and law-keeping, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. The command, therefore, is obvious. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now, surely that should have done it. Mic drop, thus ends the lecture, my teenage wayward son. We've settled it. But Paul knows the human heart always moves towards self-sufficiency. The human heart says, if I'm going to get to heaven, it's because I've done something. I've been a good person. I've shown up at church, at least on the important days. I have lived a good life. I have been a religious person. Therefore, I deserve to go to heaven when I die. Of course, that's all complete rubbish. No one is ever anywhere near good enough for God, and it's only Jesus' work of dying to pay for our sin and of uniting people to himself in his resurrection by faith that enables anyone to stand in the presence of the Holy God. And so Paul then moves to give a serious warning uh, to the Galatians about what will happen if they don't listen, if they reject his lesson. 5 verse 2, mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, which of course is given to those who have faith, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love like they used to be doing. What does Christianity look like? 
Does it look like a bunch of people trying to impress God by obeying religious rules and traditions? No. The internet might tell you that, but that's wrong. Christianity looks like people who trust that Jesus has done absolutely everything necessary to make them acceptable to God, such that they now express that trust in their loving service of others, in their joyful obedience to his word. If it's anything else, we're in real trouble. So here's a little helpful uh, test, self-diagnosis, to to sort of see where our hearts are at. Uh, Three questions that, that can be really helpful in seeing whether or not we are, we, we've kind of got this. This is the basis of our, our theology. First one, a lot of you all have heard, but if you haven't, it's really good to hear. If you were to, God forbid, die tonight on the way home or something, and uh, you meet God and God says, should I let, why should I let you into to heaven? Should your response be, well, because I, I haven't been real bad, I've been a good person? Or should your response be, because Jesus died to pay for my sins? If you had to choose one, which are you going to choose? Or another one, do you come to church to worship? Or are you a worshipper who comes to church? See the difference there, right? Another one, do you serve on the church roster because it makes you feel important and useful? Or do you do it because Jesus has met your ultimate need? Now, if you um, haven't had your coffee, you've drifted a little bit this morning, tune back in. I'm pleased to say that the last section of our passage actually really gives us a neat summary of the whole thing. So uh, that's why I didn't tell you this at the start. If you want the summary version, it's the last bit of the passage. These Galatians had put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. And that faith was the only platform upon which all their Christian lives were based. But then a bunch of Judaizers came and taught them that they needed something additional, not just faith in Christ. They needed to do the good works required by the law. Such teaching was never given by Jesus, and it's an evil theology, and it will spread Here's how Paul says it, verse 7. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from Jesus, not from the one who calls you. And it's going to spread, verse 9, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Paul has shown them why the teaching is completely false and that those who teach it will be condemned. Verse 10, I'm confident in the Lord, you'll take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever they may be, will have to pay the penalty. Notice it's not the false teaching that's going to be judged at the last day. It's the false teacher that will be judged. And Paul reveals that the motivation of these Judaizers for teaching their false gospel is not an interest in truth. It's a desire to avoid being persecuted. It's popularity. It's comfort. Paul insists that his teaching, the gospel he received from Jesus, is not at all compatible with their teaching. Verse 11, brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been abolished. Flip it around, these guys aren't actually teaching the cross. They're not legit. And so what's Paul's attitude 
and what really should inform our attitude toward these false teachers and their message. Verse 12, as for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Now, uh, sometime last week, I do this thing with my boys, at least the two older ones. We call it Bible and hot chocolate, right? So a couple of nights a week, they get to have a hot chocolate, I get to read the Bible to them and we have three different parts of the Bible, right? Old Testament, a a gospel and an other. The other, of course, is Galatians and we're going through this actual um, part of Galatians. Now, uh, uh, our middle son uh, is uh, a little bit on the spectrum and so visual things are really helpful for him. Some people are seeing what's happening already. (laughs) And so I explained to them the difference between circumcision and emasculation using visual things. (laughs) The older son thought that was hysterical. (laughs) Oh, boy. Um, But it's... Paul said, you're so keen... For, he's, he's being like, uh, like, yeah, facetious. You're so keen for doing this, but I am so against what you're doing, I wish you'd just chop the whole thing off, right? It's as, as brutal as it can, uh, uh, can be. Anyway, that's just a little lesson. If ever you have to teach some kids and uh, they can <laughs> ask me, I'm really good at drawing. Uh, anyway. <laughs> now, How might Paul's lecture and plea and teaching on Christian freedom uh, apply to us? Uh, Well, here's one of the, the, another God-given really illustration, although he gave it to me last week. I'm a a member of a a little Facebook group about, it's called Bible Reading Encouragement, right? A bunch of people that just want to help one another read the Bible and this lovely uh, young lady posts on it, she said, I've got this mini crisis I've done something wrong, I've sinned, right? And then I find it impossible to speak to God after that or to read his word or to pray. Because it's like, well, I've stuffed up. Who am I to be able to to come and sort of like, you know, enjoy my relationship with you? It takes her a lot of time after she's sinned in whatever way she has to kind of speak to God in prayer or to read his word. Now, I saw that, and I, confession time, that's the same with me. I feel that. I don't know whether that's normal, whether we're like I'm unique or like, you know, you've done something dodgy and, well, I can't pray to God now. Like, I can't ask him for anything now because, look, I've just, you know, been really disobedient. And I get that. I get that feeling. Uh, if faith in Jesus alone is the one and only platform for our salvation. If God has promised, no matter what, we, the, the, we can't achieve anything, but he will take us to be with him in the heavenly Jerusalem. Then that feeling, though I understand it and though I personally have it, uh, should not dictate how I act. So my counsel, both to her and to myself, and I've got to preach this in a mirror, is what I call praying through gritted teeth. This is a great application. You can use that. It's a good little... Praying through gritted teeth. When you feel that you've screwed up, right, and it's hard to even contemplate God, to approach God in your Bible reading and prayer, you do it even if you've got to grit your teeth because 
The word of God says that he's your father. He knows everything about you before you've done any. Before the creation of the world was when he chose to save you through the death and resurrection of Jesus and he will bring to completion the good work that he began. I understand the feeling and I have it very strongly too, but the word of God dictates how I'm going to respond, not how I feel. I feel bad, but God's my father. He says, pray, read my word. Okay, I'll grip my teeth. Dear God, I'm so sorry, I screwed up. But, and then continue. Praying through gritted teeth, a good little take on thing. And why, why can I do that? Well, because of my Christian freedom. There's nothing I need to do. I don't have to do penance, not allow myself to approach God in order to get a bit of merit so that then he will listen to me. No, he's freed me from that need. The feeling's still there, but I'm going to grip my teeth. I'm going to pray. Uh, the other thing is, people ask me about this because most of you know I'm a Jewish background. I celebrate Passover every year uh, with a family and occasionally if I can be bothered I'll do Hanukkah or Rosh Hashanah or whatever the Jewish festivals are. People ask, well why do you do that if you're a Christian? It's because I'm free to do it or free not to do it. It's irrelevant. Uh, why did I choose not uh, to have my sons circumcised and why does that not bother me? Because it makes no difference spiritually. There may be cultural reasons why it's helpful, and I decided it's helpful to show up at Passover. So I do. Uh, but it's not like... The, the thing that really irks me is around Easter, you get all these Christians saying, well, let's have a Passover meal, like that's really going to help us understand what Jesus has done. No, it's not. The Word of God helps you understand what he's done. Uh, you want to engage in something different culturally, yeah, sure, whatever, but it's really not that important. Uh, Christ has set us free from any need to be involved in those sorts of things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that uh, Jesus has met our deepest need, the need we couldn't meet, uh, of being able to be forgiven and restored into right relationship with you, that he's united us to himself through the Spirit and that therefore we are freed to love and serve one another. Father, help us to stand firm in that freedom, not to become burdened again by a yoke of slavery, thinking that we need to earn merit, that somehow Jesus didn't do enough. Father, when we do our sin, we thank you that we've got an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, whose blood covers all sin. Where the feelings can make us want to do some sort of penance or stay away from you. May we be able to, in obedience to your word, pray and pray through gritted teeth if necessary. In Jesus' name, amen.